Will you stand with me wherever you are right now, wherever you're at? <clears throat> Let's stand and show honor and respect for God's word. The reading from scripture today is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. I will invite you to read the verses in bold with me. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I want to add my welcome to those you've already received. We're so thankful that God provides uh, the way to meet together, which uh, we need. We were created for worship. We're created for community. And, uh, and here we are together, virtually and in person, doing just that. We've been in a series this fall uh, in the book of Ephesians. We've called it One in Christ. We lifted that out of the text. We didn't make it up. Um, and we've spent time examining how the, how the Apostle Paul uh, instructed this small church in a city called Ephesus. We, we spent time in this book of Ephesians examining the Apostle Paul's teaching. Uh, and, and one of the themes has been... Uh, the fact that this Ephesian church, we believe, was uh, the first of what you might call a multi-ethnic church, or the first of many over the centuries, multi-ethnic churches. This little church in Ephesus was the first place in Scripture where we hear Paul talk about what he calls the mystery of the gospel on full display. And he says in Ephesians chapter 3 that this is the mystery of the gospel, that Gentiles were fellow heirs, 
members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That Gentiles, as well as the Jews who had been expecting a Messiah, would be saved by belief in Christ. As uh, missiologist Rene Padilla says, Ephesian believers were discovering that conversion, putting your faith in Christ, is never merely a religious experience. It's also the way that you become a member of a community where people find their identity in Christ rather than race or rather than social status or rather than sexuality. And so last week, Daniel preached the beginning of this chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and, this, and he talked about how this is the part of the letter that starts to make a transition. Uh, it starts to uh, move from this incredible reality of our salvation in Christ uh, towards what that looks like in our daily lives. Uh, the letter starts to make it abundantly clear that this reality, uh, the ethos of a church is that it is a community where reconciliation with God and one another is possible based on the work of Christ. And he started to unfold for us how Paul says that actually that's one of the primary ways that the church, God's gathered people, witness to a watching world about the good news of the gospel. The fact that there's reconciliation happening in our midst. God's not-so-secret plan was to show the world that it is possible for Jews and Gentiles, men and women, servants and masters, black and white, conservatives and liberals, Giants fans and Dodger fans, <laughs> to live together in the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's a quote from Ephesians. The church is designed to be a place where despite our differences, there is, as we read last week, one body. There is one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Ephesians 4, 3 to 6. And so, uh, my friends, that is a message our hearts need to hear. For many of us, when we think about uh, conversion to Christ as a religious experience, it's easier for me to believe that I have eternal life after I leave this world than it is for me to believe that I could ever be reconciled in some of the relationships that I have. It's easier to believe uh, uh, that I'll have eternal life than expecting to ever be healed from some of the deep wounds um, that I have because of issues of race or issues of gender or other ways that people have categorized and divided and separated us. And it is a reality, the reality of the possibility of reconciliation is a reality that a divided and disintegrating world needs to see. And so, uh, this is the turn that Paul is making and we need to realize that as we go into the, the uh, the chapters ahead and there is instruction about how to live. Uh, we're realizing this is instruction about how to live together uh, to have that witness to the world. This is not what you must do to be saved. Here's an example. A few months before the pandemic, Olivia and I took our kids uh, to a, uh, a high-end pizza parlor in East Sac. It's called One Speed. You may have been there. They have amazing gluten-free pizza. 
And while we were waiting for our pizza, I was playing cards with my son and our eldest daughter at the table, and Olivia, my wife, was working on an art project, I think, with our youngest. And the owner of the restaurant came over, uninvited, uh, and nearly with tears in his eyes, he just gushed about how this was what his dream was when he opened a restaurant, that families would come and that they would spend time together and enjoy one another and eat pizza, but instead, he says, everybody just comes and stares at their phones and doesn't talk to each other. And, uh, and then he started offering our kids new clothes. Everybody got a one-speed T-shirt or a one-speed sweatshirt, and... Uh, and he was so thankful and he asked us to come back. Now, let's be honest, he caught the Carpenter family on a good night. <laughs> on a really good night. But he also only saw the big picture, right? He only saw the outside sort of uh, public witness, as it were, of our family. What he didn't observe uh, was that for that to happen, there was all kinds of preparatory activity and relational work that had been done in the background, right? Uh, uh, the underpinning of this whole thing was prep to bring games and to bring art projects to, uh, to, the, to the restaurant. And, uh, uh, the, and several failures in which we were in restaurants and daddy was on his phone and so phones were banned from uh, restauranting and so on and so forth. The day-to-day -day life of our preparation for that moment. And that's what we're talking about now. As Daniel said last week, chapter four in Ephesians is the transition from that grand picture of the gospel truth to all of the ways that that plays out in our day-to-day life. Uh, from the beautiful call to unity as a witness to a watching world to all the activity and the intentionality and the behind-the-scenes relational energy that takes to have the underpinning and the upkeeping of uh, that witness, the day-to-day -day life of the community where reconciliation with God and with each other is pursued so that it can be on display. It's easy, to, it's easy to read a passage like the one we read this morning and, and find it to be, uh, and interpret it to be very moralistic, right? There's a list of bad behaviors and practices. Don't do those things. There's a list of things that you should do, and you might begin to believe that if I do those, then God will love me. But that's not consistent with the book of Ephesians, with the message of the gospel in the book of Ephesians, which says that we've been saved by grace, not by avoiding certain things and doing other things, but by believing in the message of Christ. Believers in Christ, Ephesians tells us, is, we're, we're secure. Uh, we, we have an eternal security for um, our, our hope because Christ came, not, uh, not because Christ came and did the work uh, for us to be reconciled with God, but Christ came not just for our eternal fate, but for the day-to-day, -to, -day, to redeem the day-to-day -day and the here and now. And that's what our passage is talking about. When it starts, he says, when, when Paul talks about the way that you walk, um, he, that's actually a New Testament euphemism, the way people would have talked about the way that you live day-to-day. The Ephesians says that the gospel renews our hearts, and renewed hearts lead to renewed minds. Uh, 
And renewed minds leads to walking or living day to day in a new way. Living day to day as a new self. And the, uh, the illustration that we'll look at today talks about taking, putting off an old self and putting on a new self. Almost as if we've been, uh, we're being handed a new set of clothing. A new t-shirt. A new sweatshirt to put on and become a witness to a watching world. And it's a community. Um, renewed hearts leads to renewed minds, which re- leads to renewed actions, which leads to a renewed community. A renewed community with new selves, with renewed hearts, who have, for the first time, the ability to pursue reconciliation. So, in Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, Paul talks about two ways to walk, two ways to do life day to day. Uh, the way that we were walking or the way that we are walking before meeting Christ. And for many of us, uh, I think uh, embedded in the passage is the, is the fact that uh, many of us uh, put our faith in Christ and then it, it is a process of realizing the way that we have walked and un, unwinding that, taking that off and putting something new on. Uh, so uh, the, the, the way that we walked before we met Christ um, and, and for many of us, our, our hearts are still working and caught up in this. And uh, Paul's warning is that, uh, that we need to realize that and, uh, and take uh, this action of pursuing reconciliation so that we can uh, talk about the way to walk as a new self. And so uh, this morning, two ways to walk, calloused hearts and the law of diminishing returns and renewed hearts and putting on a new self. Uh, So first, calloused hearts and the law of diminishing returns. I learned this week that the law of diminishing returns is actually an economic term. Economists use this uh, to refer essentially to the idea that when you start a business or a factory, the first two million bucks that you invest goes a lot farther than the 10th million or 11th million. The, The more you grow, the less benefit you get from the investment that you put in. But the first time I learned or remember learning about the law of diminishing returns was actually as a young Christian man who was in love and trying to date and get engaged and pursue a marriage while pursuing a commitment to sexual purity. In this scenario, the law of diminishing returns works like this. It refers to the fact that the second kiss is never quite as electrifying as the first kiss. As wonderful it is, as it is, and likewise, each enc- with each encounter, there is a draw to go just a little bit further physically with each other so that you can feel that connection that you felt last time or that affirmation that you felt last time or that comfort and companionship. And uh, it, it works in other uh, realms as well. Uh, it works with food. Second double-double is never as exhilarating as the first double-double. It certainly works with addiction. Always needing just a little bit more to get, uh, get you, gotta, you gotta take a little bit more, do a little bit more to get the same high or the same relief or the same escape. And so the return is diminishing and draws you deeper into that difficulty. 
The idea uh, shouldn't be a surprise to any of us. Uh, Paul describes this same principle as the way that sin works in our hearts, describing what he calls walking as the Gentiles do. He says in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Darkened in understanding and alienated from God are Paul's way of describing uh, what he talks and describes in other places as what it feels like to be a human in this fallen world, created in the image of God and created for his glory, and yet because of our brokenness and because of our separation from God in sin, uh, we walk around and we breathe and we do our day-to-day life, and sometimes it's easy uh, almost impossible to do that. Uh, with, we, we do it without any sense uh, or understanding that life is a gift from God. It's not my own. Uh, that I was intended to be in a relationship with him. Um, and so the description of this uh, darkened understanding about God's design is one of, uh, of us, humanity, uh, living and wandering around in a world of tragedy and challenge without hope, and trying things to see if they'll work, and trying more of them when they don't work like we thought that they would. Where it says in, his, in this passage, uh, the, the Gentiles' hardness of heart, a better translation might be the hardening of their hearts. These are not just hearts that happen to be hard, but hearts that have been hardened, steeled against hurt, walls put up, uh, a stubbornness that grows in our hearts uh, through the practice of resisting opportunities to acknowledge God, resisting opportunities to rely on God, resisting the opportunity to repent or, for, or to forgive. And so in repeating wrong choices and in repeating the same old things and hoping for a different outcome, our hearts uh, become callous, making not a, making it not only more difficult to respond to God when we hear of him, but actually more and more insensitive to the needs of others around us. So here is the law of diminishing returns. The more I practice demeaning my spouse, the less sensitive I will be to their hurt. The more I depend on tiny lies and deception to justify my actions, the less I will flinch as my fraud increases larger and larger. The more I resort to anger and vitriol to make my point, the less humanity I will see in those who disagree with me. Verse 19 says they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The more you have a calloused heart, the more desensitized you are uh, to God in your heart uh, and to, uh, the more sensitized you are to others and their needs and their hurts, the deeper and the more you will need to do, the farther you will need to go in that practice to feel anything at all. That's the description when Paul says, given themselves up to sensuality and greed in the practice of impurity. These are things that once gave some satisfaction, once gave a momentary relief to the situation or to the, to the relationship, but now I've uh, become so callous that, I've, that I have to give myself over to it to try to feel anything at all, uh, to try to get the same feedback or the same high or the same power 
that I felt like I had the first time I turned to that false idol. But Paul says, but this is not the way you learned Christ. So let's look at what it means to have a renewed heart, put on a new self. I've been a fan of the band U2 since I was in junior high. And I love their music, and I found comfort in watching them struggle to try to be faithful to a Christian confession amidst decades of success and, and mistakes. Um, the first time I saw them in concert, I believe it was early in 2002. And we were at what was then called Arco Arena. And uh, it was just months after the 9-11 attacks. And when they began to play their song, Where the Streets Have No Name, which is a song that looks up from unnamed streets in slums around the earth to the streets of heaven and anticipates God's renewal. Um, that goes like this. It says, the city's a flood and our love turns to rust. We're beaten and blown by the wind, trampled in dust. I'll show you a place high on the desert plain yeah, where the streets have no name. And as they played that song, they scrolled the names of the 9-11 victims on a huge screen. And it was, uh, I, I was overwhelmed. Uh, it carried me away to a place where I felt like there was hope. Carried me uh, away from a world that seemed so backwards and inside out to a hope that uh, there, was a, there was a place where everything would be made right. And it was good news that my heart needed. So how do you learn Christ? You learn Christ from hearing and believing and being carried away. Uh, the good news of the gospel, this good news is that uh, though you were, as the book of Ephesians puts it, though you were dead in your trespasses and sins that you once walked in, that's the way you used to live, Christ died in your place and was resurrected. And because the consequences of sin is death and Christ has already died and defeated death, that uh, by faith when we repent, and we, we put off our sin and believe by faith and put on our belief in Christ, put on not uh, our own rightness and righteousness, but his. We put it on like a new garment. Uh, by faith, we believe and put our faith in Christ. Uh, we are told that we have conquered death with him. We're saved by believing, by hearing and believing the good news, putting off our sin and putting on Jesus' forgiveness. And Paul says that that is not just the way that you're saved, but it's actually the way that you grow, the way that we are invited to live in our day-to-day -day lives, the way that we're reconciled to each other, the way that we become more like Christ and the way that our community gives witness to the reconciling power of the gospel. It's the way that we're called to walk day to day. It's, there's three things in the passage. He says, put off your old self. Be renewed and put on a new self. Put off your old self. Uh, as we study the scriptures, what we realize is that before we know Christ, before you put your faith in Jesus, uh, we are, and let me get this right, not 
able to not sin. It's what we do. And so that is our, those are all of our options. That's our former way of life. But the passage says, be renewed. Putting off that old self. Notice that uh, renewal is not something that we do ourselves, but it's something that happens to us. We're being renewed. It's a passive verb. Something that you are receiving as you put on faith in Christ. We're renewed in the spirit of our minds and given a new heart. And then he says, put on a new self. Now becoming a new person justified in Christ, we are now for the first time in our lives able to, and I'm going to try to get this right again, for the first time in our lives able to not sin. We have a new option. We're free not to sin in all of the situations that we have always been controlled by our sin. The law of, we've always been controlled by the law of diminishing returns. And so uh, we, we were suddenly a new creation with a new option. It doesn't mean that we always prevail. Uh, but uh, the whole passage suggests that while a lot of us are still, although we're in Christ, struggling with walking in the ways that we used to walk, uh, like the law of diminishing returns, the promise of the gospel of the new self is this. The more you put off the old way and put on Christ, the softer your heart gets. The more you feel, the more you love, the more you hope, and you can get really carried away. Paul gives us a few examples in the passage. I'm just going to look at two of them. Verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Why do we tell lies? We tell lies to cover up sin, to paper over failures. We, make, we tell lies to make ourselves look good or look better than uh, what we are. We tell lies to blame shift. Uh, when it comes down to it, we tell lies to justify ourselves. I'm in the right, uh, somebody else is in the wrong. Now notice how the process works in Paul's example. He says, put off your old self. Put away falsehood. When I realize that I'm in that sort of situation where I feel the need to justify myself with a lie or a fib or a fabrication, instead, because I'm in Christ, I have a choice. I don't have to do that. I can put off the practice of justifying myself uh, with things that are better than true and be renewed because I've been renewed. Actually, I am justified in Christ. I don't have to prove myself. God has received me because of him. And so I don't need to justify my actions. I don't need to change the truth. I can choose to put on a new self, to put on a new self, uh, a, a self that is Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. Believing uh, by faith that telling the truth is always the best way, even though I can't see any reason why that would be true in this particular situation. Uh, but putting my faith in that day-to-day -day moment in Christ's justification and knowing that those are the times when the truth is hardest to handle, that the witness of the truth, the witness of the church, the pursuit of unity, uh, the, the, the membership in the community is upheld. We don't, uh, uh, we, we cannot be 
reconciled if we don't tell each other the truth? How can I forgive you if you're not being honest about what's happened? How can we make things different if we don't know what is happening itself? Here's the second example. Uh, Verse 26 and 27, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Notice he doesn't say you should never be angry. When you are angry, do not sin. God is angry in the scriptures. He's angry at injustice, angry at cruelty. His holiness demands that he's angry at immorality. Jesus got angry, turned over tables in the temple. So there is such a thing as righteous anger. But anger is a powerful emotion, a reactive emotion. And rather than express ourselves directly and pro- uh, with productivity when we're angry, we often choose to express anger with sin, profanity, destruction of property, uh, misuse of other people. And so the instruction is to put off that old self that tries to justify sin with anger. And then it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, I, many young couples, including ourselves at one point, uh, when we were first married, take this passage very literally. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That means uh, you never go to bed angry in a biblical marriage. But I'll tell you what. (laughs) We had some doozies late at night. Some legendary fights in which we added all kinds of sin and hurt to our anger because we were so exhausted we couldn't function. And so uh, the warning is actually against letting your heart get calloused and dwelling in anger. Just uh, living in anger another night to bed and still angry. Uh, It's a warning against practicing being angry at people and not planning or intending to resolve things. This is the law of diminishing returns. Allowing anger to simmer. The kind of anger that desires to see other people hurt. Uh, Brian Chappell says, gives Satan a foothold in our hearts from which he can begin to control our whole world. Number four on the list of warning signs of a toxic culture, either in church or in a home, is that nasty fights are normal. Not disagreements that produce resolutions, but anger turned into aggression or passive aggression used uh, uh, because one party needs to protect personal preferences and reputations and influences, and so they misuse other parties in the family or in the organization. Notice the process. Be angry, but put off your old self. Do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Once I've identified that I'm in that same old situation again, uh, the one that I I run to anger in, uh, because I'm in Christ, I realize I have a choice to put off the reaction that everyone around me would probably say was justified. You know, he deserved that punch. But to put off that, uh, that temptation to sin and be renewed because I've been renewed in Christ, because he has justified me at the cross, I don't have to defend myself or justify my anger. I can choose to put on a new self. A new self in Christ who does not have to sin 
because in fact, uh, but can in fact let anger and frustration lead to communication. Uh, I'm angry, something's going on. That doesn't mean I have to hurt somebody. It means I have to resolve a situation. I have to pursue justice. I have to protect someone. And the pursuit of one another to find understanding and to find the truth leads to reconciliation. And that is the witness that the watching world needs to see about the power of the gospel.